renewable energy is really at the center of the business of sustainability. As the price of installing wind and solar powered electricity has come down, the early adopters have profited and it's become clear that it is possible to have both clean energy and lower power bills. So to dig into the details, I've got Simon Holmes a court on the show today. Simon is a director at the Smart Energy Council. He's a senior advisor to the Energy Transition Hub at Melbourne University. And he was also a director of the Hepburn Wind Farm Cooperative. And it was the story that came from the Hepburn community that brought Simon to my attention. It's a story about a small town that said no to the developers who wanted to build wind farms. And instead, they built them themselves with local money building local infrastructure to make clean energy. And that's what we're all about here on the Good Future Podcast. I'm your host, John Treadgold, and I'm asking the big questions about the business of sustainability, the new economy, and how your spending and investment decisions can have a big impact. Simon has long experience in the battle to clean up Australia's electricity grid, and despite his furious activity on Twitter, calling our politicians to account, he doesn't regress to complaining about burning fossil fuels. Instead, he focuses on the opportunities, on the efficiencies of renewable power and the huge market for our technology, and even for sending the power to our neighbors in Asia. This was a great chat. We're long overdue to have a renewable power expert on the podcast, and Simon was generous with his insights. He was slow and patient in explaining the complexities of a power grid and the challenges of running an efficient market. So let's get into it. Please do leave a review on iTunes. I know I ask that every time, but uh, I don't yet have any advertisers on this podcast. And so leaving a review is the best way to let me know you're out there and that you're enjoying the show. But it also helps other people find the stories. All right, enough out of me. Here's my conversation with Simon Holmes Accord. Here we go. I'd love for you to let us know what you're working on right now. What's the focus? So I'm working at the moment at the uh, Energy Transition Hub at Melbourne University, which is a, a fascinating project. It's a, a joint venture between Melbourne University, ANU and three German universities. We're looking at the technical, economic and social aspects of energy transition. And by energy transition, I mean moving from fossil fuel dominated economy to a renewable dominated economy. So there are lots of PhD candidates and researchers working together to look at some of the energy transition challenges in Australia and Germany. And it's, it's, it's fascinating learning from what's been happening in, in Germany and uh, looking, looking at what can be applied in the Australian context. So I do, I do that. One of the projects I work on there is OpenNEM, which is opennem.org.au, which allows people to look at how the energy system in Australia is transitioning. You can look at where energy is coming from today, last week, and zoom out and out, out all the way out to the last 15 years or so, looking at the difference in the contribution from the different technologies. And you can see quite clearly our energy system transitioning. We're still very fossil fuel dominated, but we've moved rapidly and that uh, has accelerated very significantly over the last few years and, and, uh, and we've still got a fair runway to go. Yeah, great to hear that so many universities are working together. It makes me sort of wonder, is that also interdisciplinary? I mean, is that economics, political science, is it environmental science? Absolutely. There are people from uh, the law faculty, uh, there's environmental scientists, 
economists, a lot of climate scientists who have people uh, in, in the team who are contributors to the IPCC reports and social scientists as well. So it's, it's a very broad range of projects that sit under this energy transition hub umbrella. As well as all that, I'm, I'm on the board of the Smart Energy Council, which is a peak body for, I guess, uh, solar storage and now hydrogen you know, in Australia. Came out of the Australian New Zealand Solar Energy Society, which started up in the 19, uh, 1950s, I believe, and uh, has, has grown to be a mainly an industry body, but also um, advocates and you know, other interested parties who, who really want to have a strong renewable or smart energy sector in the country. And I do a bunch of uh, writing, tweeting and conference talks and backgrounding on, on energy, especially focusing on the energy transition in Australia. That's my real passion. Okay, well, you sound busy. And, and what proportion of all that of your day is spent on Twitter trolling Angus Taylor, our energy minister? <laughs> Oh, Angus is not not the only one I, I, I interact with. Well, I mean, I don't I don't think Angus has ever responded to anyone on Twitter, but certainly I'm I'm a critic. I'm a critic because I think he's doing a really lousy job, probably by design. He's he's been working very hard for um for many years before he was energy minister to slow down the energy transition. You know, he's put it on record that he's been opposing the wind industry since 1998. So I guess it's 21 years this year. Congratulations, Angus, for that big milestone. Well, that's it. And, and as you said, you've got, you know, you're working with a whole variety of universities. You've got Smart Energy Council, that's business. There's all of these groups driving forward. And yet our pinnacle, the energy minister, is actively and, and you know, states that he's working against it. The easy answer is that it's protectionism for the incumbent coal industry, but there's got to be more to it than that. How, how do you see it? Ironically, electricity is not within the domain of the Commonwealth. Uh, the electricity system is, has been interpreted to absolutely be within the domain of the states. And that's why whenever anything significant about energy is discussed, it's, it's at the, um, uh, the COAG Energy Council, which is chaired by the Commonwealth Minister. But some of the best work that's been done on energy was done uh, by a subset which called the Commonwealth of Australian Federation or Committee for Australian Federation, I think it was, which, which was the group that commissioned Professor Garno to do his report back in, I think, 2006. That was run by the states. And, um, you know, it looks like we've, we've got a period of states taking leadership back again due to this federal vacuum. But as to the reasons behind I, I don't jump for the idea that it's um, it's vested interests with trying to protect their domains as much. There's certainly in there, there, there are some folks in the energy sector who are big donors and who have the ear of backbenchers, and that's why we've got this nuclear inquiry coming up. But the I think the biggest reason we, we have such an impasse on energy at the moment in Australia is it's just it's just tribalism. The Greens and Labor jumped on renewables, um, Labor a bit later, but the Greens made a fuss about renewables and, and um, almost in reflexive opposition. We've seen uh, the coalition choose that fossil fuels will be their totem and wind turbines and solar panels will be the, the left's totem. And we're in a silly culture war on energy, which although that's, that dominates media and, and politics, when you get down to it in industry, no one in industry is talking about building new fossil fuel plants. Very few think that they've got a very long future in Australia. All the interest, all the new research, everything is towards the clean alternatives. So interesting, this, this identity politics. And I, I think we saw that before the election when there were suggestions about, you know, um, issues around electric cars and trying to push that forward with policy. And while the uh, coalition had been, had been promoting that earlier on, they were very quick to, to slam it and, and pull back all of that messaging. And Crazy, yeah. They were, they were spruiking the, what they call the Climate Solutions Package, 
right in the middle of that was a proposal for a electric vehicle strategy, which was by all, all accounts identical to Labor's. But at some point, someone took a political calculation that it was best to um, politicise the issue and for the coalition to put themselves on one side. And so we had you know, one of the silliest episodes in Australian politics for a long time. Yeah, very disappointing how energy has become so politicised when it's, it's such a vital commodity for keeping our society going. And most of the people who are speaking about it in media and politics don't understand it. Let's try and understand it a bit more. Let's not, let's not dwell on the roadblocks. I'd love to hear about some of the, the positive action. And the Hepburn Wind Farm is, is something that's grabbed my attention. You know, it's a project that, that really captures all the elements that I try to focus on here. It's, it's sustainable energy, it's community engagement, it's business model innovation, and uh, you know, a local business delivering local profits. So uh, what was the genesis there and, and what did you have to do with it? A few years before I got involved, back in about 2004, there was a wind farm developer that wanted to build a project about 30 kilometres away from Dalesford. Dalesford's a small country town, about 100 kilometres northwest of Melbourne. And a yeah, developer wanted to build a wind farm near there. Uh, it was excellent, excellent wind and good grid access. They had a town hall meeting where they were going to tell the community all about this wonderful new project. And the town hall meeting ended up being a lot like a lynching. The developers were uh, you know, booed out of the room, given the strong impression that they were absolutely not welcome in town and they could take their turbines and, and stick them somewhere else. A group from Dalesford had gone along to that meeting with a very different attitude. They were really excited that there were going to be wind turbines in the area. And it was the guy who drove, who drove the car was Pierre Bernard, who is a, Pierre is a um, Danish citizen who lived, lives in Dalesford and a builder uh, and grew up in Denmark where wind turbines are all around. And he was very familiar with the technology and he, he in Denmark at that stage, um, the vast majority of wind turbines were owned by communities, whether it was the cooperatives or farmers or local government. Almost all the wind turbines in Denmark were owned at the community level. Pierre and his group went along to that and they were really disappointed that there was such reflexive opposition um, that people didn't even spend the effort to try to work out what the benefits were or why, why it would be a good thing for the community. And they committed themselves in the car ride on the way, way back to educate, educate the community on the opportunities of, of wind energy. And the, the idea really branched out from there. And I, I bumped into Pierre about two years later on the main street of Dalesford. He had a card table set up. He had a, the wind atlas open showing that Dalesford is in the top tier of wind uh, areas in Victoria. We had a diagram showing how uh, the financial structure of a cooperative would work, that we would raise money from our community, we would get out a bank loan, we would install two turbines, we would uh, sell the energy to the network and, uh, and then pay for the maintenance of the turbines and return the profits to the community and to the investors. So and it was at the time when a lot of communities around us were we're exploring the um, Bendigo Bank model where, where Bendigo would provide the back office, but the community would do the grunt work to bring the customers, the business and, and the initial capital for the branch. So that idea really took hold. And when it, when it got to about 500 people, we had a formation meeting and I went along to that meeting and, and came out as the, um, as the chair of the Hepburn Community Wind Park Cooperative. It, it took us, uh, well, we, th we thought it would take 12 weeks to raise the money to build the project. We thought we'd need about five million to do it and we'd, we'd get it in 12 weeks. Just as we launched our prospectus in July 2008, the financial crisis hit. And so at 12 weeks, we were only about a third of the way through and it was pretty hairy. We, we extended the, um, the share offer a little bit longer. 
Uh, we got a bit more money in, but by the end of 2008, it was pretty dire. Cast your mind back to how people felt about risking money at the early stage of the financial crisis. What we thought would take 12 weeks ended up taking about two and a half years. We gave members the opportunity to withdraw uh, if they weren't interested in proceeding, but all but about two people went went forward. We eventually had 2,000 members. Um, the bank was a lot less interested in, in taking risk towards the end, so they only put in about 25% of what was needed to build the project. Uh, and all up, we raised $10 million from 2,000 members under a cooperative structure. And we built the wind farm in June 2011, so we've just, just passed the eight-year mark, which was, uh, yeah, very rewarding to see our turbines up there uh, having generated so much energy, about 80,000 tonnes of CO2 have not been emitted as a result of the wind farm there. We've funded about a quarter of a million dollars worth of community projects. The project's now debt-free and we've paid off our loan and paid our first dividend last year for the project. Yeah, such an interesting story. Um, great to hear everybody coming together and I'd love to understand the cooperative model a little bit better. So the, the 10 million raised, do people have um, an ownership stake there or do they then, is part of that that they can then pull power from that ownership or is it just a simple, um, you know, they're all owners and, and the power gets sold? What everyone wants to do is in the project, we, you know, we, want to, we want to buy a share in a project and have it come off our electricity bills, just like you buy solar panels and put it on your roof, you can see your electricity bill being reduced by it. That's the holy grail in community ownership. But there are a lot of barriers through that. They um, need to have a deep integration with a retailer and uh, you need to have special concessions about paying to wheel the power through the distribution network and have that done at a reasonable rate. There are a lot of regulatory issues around selling selling power. So we we only cracked part of that nut. Yeah, we, it's sort of an exercise for, for future projects to close that loop so that people could directly sort of consume their power. But what we did do is work with, with a retailer, first with Red Energy and then more recently with PowerShop to create our own branded product. PowerShop buys all the energy from the project and uh, all, and the renewable energy certificates from the project and PowerShop customers can go in and buy Hepburn branded power. Our members can't see their energy, that their share of their energy netted off their electricity bill, but they're in line, of course, to get dividends uh, or distributions, as you call it in the co-op world. Yeah, casting our mind back to 2008 when we launched, people were very suspicious of renewable energy companies. Some of the early companies that had been around regional Victoria had been cowboys. Some of them had not looked after communities well. Yeah, and, and sometimes that was just the gold rush mentality of, uh, you know, of, of a land grab or carpetbaggers going out and snapping the best sites they could and, and stuff the neighbours and stuff the community. And other times that was just, you know, I guess wind companies had walked into town and said, you know, sort of they had the attitude of we're here to save the earth, move out of the way and let us get on with our job. There was sort of a self-righteousness. So there was a lot of, there was a lot of, suspicion about renewable energy developers and we wanted to set ourselves very much apart from that we wanted to set right from the outset that it was a community project not some greenwashed corporate project and the cooperative had a structure that really appealed to our community where it's uh, one member one vote so you don't call them shareholders you call them members in the cooperative world and so whether you have a hundred shares or 100,000 shares, you have the same vote at any meeting and there's no way that someone can do a takeover or change the structure of the cooperative. It's very much protecting the interests of the member with the fewest number of shares. Yeah, that's a pretty radical difference, you know, hearing it in that way. I can sort of think of the benefits there. What's the downside? Does that make it difficult to sort of scale? One of the downsides is that there are so few service providers of thinking legal and accounting who 
really understand the structure and there are differences in the way the accounts need to be prepared and there are different compliance regimes and, and very often we get advice from people that would fit under the Corporations Act that the cooperatives are under different regulation. At the stage we launched too, there, was, there, were, there wasn't a uniform national cooperative code. We took a handful of members from other states, which we wanted to give the opportunity to, to, to all Australians to um, invest in the project. So we, we, we opened it up to other states and that, that caused a lot of trouble because there wasn't uniform cooperative law. I think that's changed now. But some of the benefits are it, it is a much lower barrier to raise money under the cooperative structure, certainly was then. We still had to put a very rigorous uh, disclosure statement together, which is which is equivalent to a prospectus. But the the cooperative registrars hold your hand a bit, and um, they're prepared to work with you to make make a structure more um, easier for a community to raise money through that structure. The biggest thing for us was signalling to members that this is very much a project was being built with that triple bottom line in very much front of mind that we we were. It was very important that we we had a, an economic return, an environmental return, and a social return. Right from the start, people knew that we wanted to fund sustainability projects in our community. And as I said just before, the project has, has funded a, a quarter of a million dollars worth of projects in our community across, I think it's about 30 or 40 different projects that might be the men's shed or the local kindergarten or a food bank. We've funded a lot of social good within the community. People knew that up front. And that would be a bit harder to do if we were a straight corporate structure and a bit harder for people to take the leap of faith if they knew there was a chance that someone could come in and do a takeover bid or sell the project out. Well, that's and it sounds that early on there... Their hesitation was really around, you know, a, a foreign body, sort of developers. It's a bit of a cliche to have that fear, but, you know, very much wanting to protect their community. You know, it wasn't that it was renewable energy or that it was wind farms. It was simply that it was, you know, a big corporate structure coming in that when they were given the option to own it themselves and understood, you know, the rolling benefits, then that changed everything. So, again, you know, we, we come against this over and over that it's the business model innovation that's really important. And as, you know, you had so many examples of, of regulation getting in the way there, that that was the major hurdle. And I think that's, you know, we sort of talked about that a little bit with the fact that energy is, uh, is much more of a state-based issue than federal. And with so many of these things, we do have this huge network and that obviously has a big fixed cost. And even if you do have power on your roof, you still have to pay your fair share if you're going to then sell that power out and, and to go externally. Um, you know, there's been a whole lot of issues with trying to work out the price that people are paid for the power they generate going out from their house and the fact that it's very rarely as much as they pay coming in. Yeah, that's a big issue to, to, to solve in Australia. We've just, we've just passed 20% of households with rooftop solar. And it's showing no sign. In fact, it, it's accelerating. The rollout's accelerating. And uh, I think solar on rooftop has moved from being a privilege of the few to being people feel that they have a right to put solar on their roof. And so they should. So many Australians have reduced their electricity bills so much that it, to put the brakes on now would raise some deep equity issues. But likewise, um, as you know, people put put uh, solar on their roof, use the network less, they still rely on it mainly but they exercise the network less. And so trying to work out a charging model where we can equitably share the costs of developing the poles and wires without it turning out to be a, a solar tax is a real problem we've got in front of us to try to work out something that is politically palatable and feels fair to all Australians while opening up the opportunity of solar ownership to everybody. That's right. So interesting. And I think going from that 
micro view of individuals with panels on their roof and that causing you know economic ructions we've then got this huge expansion in in large scale solar farms and you know some crazy numbers uh, about the installed capacity we have now it's almost become it's being discussed in the media so often now uh, there's sort of an expectation that we understand a lot of this technical jargon and my head starts spinning when when they talk about prices and power grids in the national energy guarantee but one thing that's really interesting is the nature of these uh, flexible variable prices that go up and down for the at the wholesale level and these issues in in Queensland where suddenly you have these uh, on a very sunny day heaps of power being pumped in the price just you know drops down to zero and the issues that that causes for the economic models and and these big industries that are uh, that are trying to base their revenue on this stuff yeah so i mean let me just start out at giving people a sense of the scale of all the the acceleration in our renewable sector so in around about 2001 when when john howard brought in the, the renewable energy target or called the mret back then we had about about seven percent of australia's power was renewable and the goal was to lift it another two percent two percent by 2010 and that was met several years early and there was there was a uh, lot of discussion on whether or not to raise that and that became a big election issue in, in 2007 election in 2009 they increased that to bring us to to 20% by 2020. We passed by 20% last year. So we, we went from 9% to 20%. Uh, it took us 17 years to do that, 11% increase. We're doing another 11% increase over the next two years. Australia built 12 gigawatts of renewable energy in the 30 years to 2017, and it's going to build that much again in the three years after. It's a massive acceleration. There's a huge amount going in. So you're saying 12 gigawatts is in place, another 12 is going in, that'll be 24. How does that compare to the other options? I guess the fossil fuel-based. Yeah, well, it's, you can't really compare one megawatt with one megawatt or you know, gigawatt with one gigawatt because they will run at different capacity factors. But what where it'll take us is you know, we, we've gone from a tenth of energy being renewable or an, an eleventh, I guess, a decade ago to a fifth now and we'll be at a third within two years. It's a very steep incline. Now, there's a dearth of policy. Looking out more than about two years, there's, it looks like there's quite a hole in the development. Um, some are more concerned than others about that, but certainly we're, we're on track for a bit of a slowdown. But even with that slowdown, we will probably hit 50% in Australia at the end of next decade uh, without any policy. And who knows, we might get some good policy between now and then. So things are moving very quickly there. You know, and it's not, not without challenges, but our institutions that are responsible for managing these challenges, uh, I think, are doing a doing a, an outstanding job. There's a lot of noise and stress in the in the media and politics, but with a tiny exception, you know, the reliability in Australia. Well, the reliability in Australia of our network has been absolutely world class. We have one of the highest reliability standards in the world. 99.998% of energy demand just needs to be delivered, and um, we routinely. Uh, exceed that goal with very, very minor exceptions over the last decade. And back to that issue of pricing volatility, does that cause, even if it's more power than we need or that that means that there's plenty of power, um, how does that affect the retailers and the pricing? So there's a lot of, a lot of noise at the moment about volatility in the market. Now, there, there always has been volatility in the electricity market. At the beginning of this decade, we'd often see that gas generators would, would or certain generators would receive about a quarter of their income from just 20 or so hours a year due to the extremely high prices. So it, it's been long been a feature in Australia that we have very high prices on very hot days when demand is tight. 
and uh, when there's some um, coal power stations that can't be turned off, but but not much demand, then the price crashed very common, and that would be in the single digits. But it seems that you know very recently people are really um, wigging out when they're seeing negative prices. There's a lot of talk about it. Well, most energy facilities, whether they're renewable or not, have contracted their output at a fixed price. If this goes on for many many hours every day for long periods of time, that'll affect the contracting positions for those who are either out of contract or about to contract. But most facilities are not really affected by this volatility. And the volatility is is in the market by design. The volatility is telling generators that they, uh, it's sending a signal to, to market participants. We've got high prices, it's sending a signal that we need more generation to come into the market and it will, will do so if the market is left to be efficient. And the very low prices is, is sending a signal to generators that they need to be more flexible. And that's exactly what happens in a renewable, as the grid becomes more and more penetration of renewables in our, in our grid, there's a premium paid for flexible and dynamic generators. Uh, so it's it, yes, it is a problem to the coal generators if they can't ramp, but that's the energy transition. That's the, I guess, sort of creative destruction that we see in efficient markets. Well, there we go, efficient markets. So that, that really is the big question is, is it an efficient market? And if, if not, what's stopping it? Is the market efficient? Uh, is it working efficiently right now? No, it's not. There are two reasons for that. One is we, we have serious competition issues in, in our market. We, we have um, the big three retailers control the electricity market in most, in most regions, uh, certainly the mainland uh, NEM regions, which is South Australia, Victoria, New South Wales and Queensland. The big retailers pretty much control those markets and there's been some great work out of Victoria University, Bruce Mountains Group, showing that when Hazelwood closed down, the generators, I think I might get in trouble with legal for saying, saying this, but the, 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 there's evidence or there, at least there is a perspective that can be backed up with data that generators raised their bid prices by $20. Now, nothing changed in their cost structures. They raised their bids by $20 a megawatt hour, um, which is very significant, with nothing other than, um, I guess, financial motivation to do so. And because our market is so shallow, that, or at least the, the, the market dominance of these large generators, the prices have been artificially kept up high ever since. So one issue we do have is a lack of competition, and, and ACCC noted this and, and suggested that we should have a, a, a scheme to help underwrite new generators into the market. That recommendation hasn't been properly addressed by the federal government. But that's you know, competition or anti-competitive behaviour is a big problem in our market and, and definitely consumers are suffering from that. And so three main generators, and some of those I think are retailers as well. But when you've got, you know, groups like PowerShop, they're not really a, they're not a generator, are they? They're just a retailer. No, they are. They're, they're backed by Meridian Energy. It's actually New Zealand government-owned generator. So PowerShop is the retail arm, Meridian is the, the generation arm. And they have a significant fleet of, of wind farms and, and um, believe they've got some solar and uh, they've got some hydro now. I mean, they're relatively small. They won't get to move the market much and um, everyone's in well, if it's renewables, they'd bid in at zero or, or below. They're not pushing the price up. But the price in the market is set almost always by, uh, by coal and by gas. And people change their bid stack significantly with the exit of, of Hazelwood. And that's been a major driver of prices. Those prices should come down as new entrants come in. But new entrants are not coming in. People are sitting on their hand because of the great uncertainty caused by all the interventions in the market. So we've got a federal government that's talked about underwriting 
new coal power stations talked about just in this week. There's been discussion about paying coal generators to stay open. There's been a national energy guarantee that's been on or off, on and off again. There's been a long series of interventions and threats by the government of, of getting in and doing the heavy lifting themselves and then not doing anything that investors are sitting on their hands. There, there are two large gas proposals, gas generation proposals for Newcastle that have just been sitting in the wings waiting for federal policy to calm down. But as, as long as it keeps going, they're just going to keep sitting on their hands. Mm, I think that investment side's uh, a really important one. And, you know, impact investing uh, really got a boost early on from the renewable energy investors because it was, you know, such a clear opportunity to make a profit but also have a, a really measurable impact. But as it becomes mainstream and as, you know, impact investing is designed, it becomes mainstream and then suddenly it, it just becomes plain old investing and that's great. So what other business opportunities do you see in this, this new world of uh, renewable energy? One thing that's been the case in Australia for about, about five years, everyone who's got a rooftop is basically burning money if they don't have solar on their, on their roof. But there are firms that are out there trying to um, help cash flow consumers to put panels on their roof. And um, I'm thinking you know, one, one of them is um, a company called Bright, B-R-I-G-H-T-E. They've got a model where consumers can very simply, you know, very low friction finance panels to put on their roof, pay them back over a time frame that matches the economic benefit from them. And you don't have to get involved in the in the federal politics or play the wild markets. It's, it's, it's a brutal game out there playing in the electricity markets at the moment with a lot of political risk. But if you're behind the meter or you are enabling others to install projects behind the meter, then there's a big area there in which in which people can can play with the Hepburn project. After we built we built Hepburn, lots of other communities wondered you know how they could do similar projects. We, we documented a lot of the Hepburn project set up an organisation called Embark, which was about spreading or being an information interchange for both Hepburn and other community energy projects. That project got subsumed um, within the Coalition for Community Energy. Uh, and they're tracking about 80 projects around the country, most of which are these um, behind-the-meter solar projects, mostly solar. Solar projects are, are quicker and smaller capital requirements than, than wind. But there, there are still lots of impact investment opportunities within uh, the community energy space in Australia. Good stuff. Good stuff. So interesting. And I mean, I think going from this very local level and talking about the Australian perspective, you know, obviously the debate still rages about climate change, which is really frustrating, but, you know, it's definitely at least it's, it's being discussed so broadly and, and so fiercely and passionately. And in a couple of weeks, the UN is holding its annual climate summit. Um, hopefully this episode will be published sometime around that time. What, what are your hopes for this kind of event? And, and do, you, do you sort of see these big things as talk fests? Or do you think that we're reaching a point now when, you know, we've got the global climate strike? We had the kids leading the way, and now that's just become a general strike. So are you optimistic? So I'm very lucky that coincidentally I'm going to be in New York during that week, uh, at the, during, during the climate week, and I've managed to find a, a way into a few of the sessions into that. So I'll be able to give you a first hand reading on, on whether it is anything more than a talk fest. One of the initiatives I am had, had a little bit to do with as a supporter and, and definitely an avid follower is the RE100 initiative, which is um, it's a global initiative for multinationals and large corporates to commit to going 100% renewable by 2030 at the latest. Some are more aggressive than that. We already have, I think, four banks in Australia uh, have signed up 
for that and some large companies, you know, both um, multinationals like IKEA and uh, Mars Food have signed up for that. And I know that a lot of those businesses who are involved in, in pushing renewables faster than, than say, their, the governments that in the countries they operate in, a lot of those companies are going to be there and advocating for a lot of change. So I'm interested in seeing how these renewable forward companies are going to uh, interact with political leaders and, and push push for action. I think we've got most of the banks and all the technology, all the major internet technology companies are all behind this. And the RE100, which was originally going to be just 100 companies, I think it's, it, you know, it's, it's approaching 200 now. There's a, a lot of optimism that corporations are, um, are now leading uh, and doing so more aggressively than a lot of countries. Very good. Well, great to hear you'll be over there. You know, I think there'll be a big contingent and, and I'm sure we'll get reports coming through. So it'd be great to uh, touch base on Twitter and, and I'm sure you'll be active and I think that'll be a good a good feed. So yeah, I'll, uh, I'll try and make sure this episode gets out and, and we can try and get people following along. Definitely be tweeting my observations while I'm, while I'm over there. Oh, good stuff. Good stuff. Well, look, um, thank you for that. Your observations have been really interesting and I'm, I hope my audience have got a lot out of it. This is one of these sort of issues and sectors that's been bubbling away for forever really, but I've been following it for, for the past 10 years and it's evolving and it's shifted and there's lots of frustrations, but we really seem to have been hitting a, a sort of confluence of financial side is meeting with the sort of greeny side and again with the community coming together to want to decentralize. So I think it's a pretty powerful moment that, that can't really be ignored anymore. So yeah, all very exciting. We spend a lot of time following the media and political discussion on energy and being frustrated at how behind some sectors of the media and large sections of politics are on it. But when you speak to industry and you speak to people who are actually responsible for delivering this stuff, all the momentum is in that there's no debate. There's no climate debate. There's no energy debate within the energy sector. It's a sideshow in the media and political space. You know, nobody has any intention to do any other than an energy transition. And it's, it's, on, it's on economic grounds. The question is just how fast and um, how quickly government will remove the barriers for doing so. So it's not a question of if or when. It's, we're just now a question of how fast. Oh, look, great stuff. Good to end on some optimism. But um, one last question, and that is a book recommendation. I spend way too much time reading these boring uh, 200, 300, 400-page reports from... Um, Groups like the, the Energy Market Operator and the um, Energy Markets Commission and the Energy Regulator and all, all of uh, you know, the various reviews. But um, I, I do get a chance to read for fun and for more broad understanding. Related to what we've been talking about, one of the, one of the best things I've read recently is um, a book by Dr. Joelle Gurgis, I think, um, Sunburnt Country. She's a Melbourne University climate scientist. She's an, a contributor to the IPCC project. But she's written a book about the climate history of Australia going back to pre-European settlement through to a, a lot of the book talks about the colony's difficulty in managing Australia's very variable uh, and harsh climate. So you've got a climate scientist you're talking very freely about you know, that we've, we've, we've had an extreme climate for a long time and it's been really tough. But then she goes and puts it into context about how fragile our society is in Australia or how um, reliant we are on a benign climate and how quickly that's changing. So it puts where we are into context. Yeah, we know this is an extreme country and she puts that into context really well. It's, it's, it's well written and a fun read. Very good, very good. I've not come across that one, but I'll definitely give it a read. Great. Thanks, John. Thank you, Simon. Yeah, really appreciate your time. What's your Twitter handle so people can follow? Because uh, you're very active there. It's good stuff. Uh, yeah, Simon A H A C. 
Simon AHAC on there a fair bit. So if you've got any questions, fire them my way. And I try to get to every sensible question I find and probably spend too much time answering questions from people who aren't that sensible. But but I, I enjoy the enjoy the banter on Twitter and find that you know, a lot of really enlightening conversations do come up despite the 280 character limit. There are a lot of smart people on it. Energy Twitter is a fascinating subset of, of Twitter. Yeah, well, I guess you've got to separate the wheat from the chaff. That's the way with any, any comment structure these days. But um, yeah, that'd be great if we can, yeah, send some more questions your way. And, and thanks for answering my questions today. Thanks, John. Take care. And thanks to all your listeners for getting this far through the podcast. <laughs> Good stuff. All right. Cheers, Simon. Yeah.